Hello, friends, and welcome to Sunday Dive. I want to take this time to uh, offer you a happy Easter. You may be wondering why this episode is not beginning with the normal intro music. And the short answer is that I have for you today a rebroadcast from last year's Divine Mercy Sunday episode. Why? Because year after year, regardless of year A, B, or C in the cycle of readings, we read the same gospel for Divine Mercy Sunday. So pulling out, dusting off, Episode 30 from last year's Divine Mercy Sunday. Going to fire that up for you here in a second. Before that, just a quick announcement that I did load the podcast onto two more uh, podcast platforms. You can find Sunday Dive now on Spotify as well as on Amazon Music. Spotify and Amazon Music. So if you listen to music or podcasts there, you can uh, listen to Sunday Dive there as well. Uh, I promise you, I will be back with new content next week. I know that I didn't have content for the Triduum or for Easter Sunday. Took a little break from that. Uh, But I will have a brand new spanking shiny episode for you next week for the third Sunday of Easter. But in the meantime... Hold tight and enjoy this rebroadcast of episode 30, Divine Mercy Sunday 2020, and we will see you next week. Happy Easter. Welcome to another edition of Sunday Dive. I'm Katie Patrizio, and today we're talking about the readings for the second Sunday of Easter, April 19th, 2020. Jesus appears to the disciples in our gospel today, not bringing vengeance or even guilt. His first concern is to bestow peace upon the twelve. He breathes on them, reminding us of the creation of the first man in Genesis, and in so doing bestows the gift of the Holy Spirit and deputizes the act of forgiveness through the institution of confession. Read every year on Divine Mercy Sunday, this beautiful gospel serves as a pledge of God's love and mercy should we only trust in Him. Hello, faithful listeners and new listeners as well. Happy Easter. Uh, Still, at least if you are listening to this on or before Sunday, remember uh, Easter is an octave on the Catholic Church calendar, which basically means in the most blissful sort of way, we have like Groundhog Day for eight days. Like every morning you wake up, it's uh, it's Easter Sunday again. Eight days we celebrate the uh, Easter octave. And so happy Easter heartily once more. Today we are talking about the readings for the second Sunday of Easter. Um, in our reading, we're going to jump back to the gospel of John uh, and pick up right after uh, John's initial resurrection account. So our last episode for Easter Sunday, I chose to delve into the gospel from Matthew because uh, Matthew is what we read at the Easter vigil for year A. Um, But we're going to pick up with John here. And in fact, this gospel, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31, is read every single second Sunday of Easter, regardless uh, regardless if we're in year A, year B, or year C. And the second Sunday of Easter... 
since the pontificate of Pope John Paul II is also known as Divine Mercy Sunday. And we're going to see why uh, that is a fitting designation uh, for this day based on our readings, or maybe put another way, why today the second Sunday of Easter is such a great day to be designated as Divine Mercy Sunday. So let's dive right into it. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails in my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. Okay, so just let's back up just very briefly and very quickly in the Gospel of John. So um, John 20, verses 1 through 19 is the story of the initial resurrection account in John, and it uh, focuses primarily on Mary Magdalene. So Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb early, um, doesn't find Jesus, uh, eventually sees a man who she mistakes for the gardener. Jesus reveals himself to her. He's not the gardener. He is the resurrected Lord. And they have this beautiful exchange. It's one of my favorite sections of scripture. But we're told that verse 18, that Mary Magdalene went and said to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she, she told them that he had said these things to her. So she recounted her experience meeting Jesus in the garden where his tomb was located. And then that's where our gospel picks up here at verse 19 on the evening of that day. So our the, the initial part of our gospel, our first part of our gospel is set on the evening of Easter Sunday. So on the evening of Easter Sunday, the first day of the week, uh, the disciples are gathered together in this house and we're told that the doors are locked for fear of the Jews. Uh, There's a couple of important details here. First of all, we can assume, 
and this goes along with the tradition, that the location where the disciples find themselves is in Jerusalem. This would explain why they are fearful, fearful because of the Jews and why they have the doors locked. We get this idea that they're definitely hiding uh, because they're probably concerned that the fate that fell to Jesus is going to fall to them as well. So they are in Jerusalem. They're behind locked doors. And all of a sudden, even though there's locked doors, all of a sudden, Jesus comes and stands in their midst. We can understand that this is this is why John goes through the great detail of telling us that the doors were were locked. Some translations will say that the doors were shut, and that's a valid translation. Um, but it wouldn't be as uh, an important detail if John was just telling us that the doors were shut. So I think he means to tell us that they were shut and they were bolted. Uh, The disciples did not want any visitors, but that does not deter Jesus from coming to them. He comes to them and he stands in their midst and he says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. A couple things here. The doors are locked. They're closed and bolted and Jesus can still get to them. What does that tell us about our Lord? It tells us that his body, his resurrected body is different and not different in the sense that he took on like a new body or different in the sense that it's not a real body or his body, but rather different in the sense that it is a glorified body or what St. Paul is going to call a spiritual body, actually. And so Jesus's body is able to do miraculous things. So Jesus is able to pass through walls and locked doors, all right? So Jesus uh, passes through the locked doors miraculously, stands among them and says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. On the surface, um, this can just seem like a greeting. And even when we delve into what Jesus is actually saying here, it can also still seem like a greeting because this was a traditional greeting in uh, in Hebrew, shalom. If you go to Israel today, you'll still see and hear people greeting each other with shalom, peace. That's how they say hello to one another. Um. And so Jesus, in one sense, is saying hello to them, but I do believe there's something deeper going on here. For one, we have to consider the fact of the disciples being uh, behind closed and bolted doors for fear, for fear of the Jews, but they also just abandoned our Lord just a few days before and all except John failed to remain with him to the end. And so there's probably a little bit of, uh, you might say survivor's guilt going on here. And Jesus whom they have abandoned stands in their midst What might the disciples' reaction be? I would surmise that here the fear for, uh, or the fear of the Jews is added to by maybe an initial fear of Jesus himself. Is he going to punish me? 
Uh, is he going to uh, to do justice to me, right? Because I have indeed rejected him. But what is Jesus's reaction to the 12? Nothing but immense love and condescension, right? Peace be with you. Peace be with you. And this is, this is an initial giving of peace in a way. Um, but at the same time, at the Last Supper, just a few chapters earlier, Jesus had said to his apostles, my peace, I leave you, my peace, I give you. And so he recognizes that his disciples' peace has been lost. And one of his first desires is to restore their peace to them. And what we're, we're already seeing here is the wonderfully merciful heart of our Lord who cares so deeply about us. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, so I send you. Let's stop here quickly. So he, he greets them, peace be with you. He greets them not with vengeance. And he also understands that, uh, you know, in a way that repentance does not exclude peace. Okay. We can think about that perspective because he's going to want repentance from his disciples, them to repent of, of their falling away, failing to follow him to the cross. But repentance does not exclude peace. Repentance does not exclude peace. Our Lord never wants us to lose our peace because our peace is a prerequisite for him working within us. I wish I could go into more detail on this, but if you're interested and intrigued by this idea, which I was too, when I first kind of heard this spiritual theology, you can check out a, a beautiful book by Father Jacques Philippe called Searching for and Maintaining Peace. He makes the case that almost the, the only prerequisite to the spiritual life is to maintain peace of heart. That's like our only, that's the only thing that we have to do because the Holy Spirit um, needs peace in order to move in us. But it's this beautiful idea here too, where we can't give ourselves peace. Peace is a gift from the Lord. And so having received the gift of peace, our job is simply as much as possible to the best of our abilities to maintain our sense of peace. So repentance does not exclude peace. Our Lord always wants us to have peace. Peace be with you, he says. And then he shows them his hands and his feet. Again, we're going to see our Lord over and over again after his resurrection, emphasizing the physicality of his resurrected body. He wants them to understand that he is not a ghost, that he is not just a spirit, that he hasn't taken upon himself a new body, that he hasn't kind of gone back to how he was before the incarnation and 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 uh, kind of left off his flesh like a, a snake sheds its skin, right? And gone back to simply being the, the divine logos. No, he is the same Jesus, but a Jesus with a resurrected body. 
And and not only that, but this Jesus with this resurrected body still has his wounds, okay? But but John hasn't told us that yet. He's just said he showed them his hands and his side, although we can assume that what he's showing them in his hands and his side is the wounds. But when we get to Thomas at the end, we're going to get the explicitness of how our Lord wants to maintain his wounds, Let's continue on. Again, he says to them, peace be with you. And then he says, as the father has sent me, so I send you. Now, we're not very far into our gospel, but we can already glean a ton from it. What can we glean? We can glean that Jesus's initial desires after his resurrection in a way, the first thing that he wants to do after his resurrection is restore peace to his disciples, is to reconcile them to himself. And is not this the entire purpose of Jesus becoming incarnate, to reconcile the world to himself? His whole point of dying on the cross is to to close the gap between man and God. And so having done that, by dying on the cross and rising from the dead, he desires to, to give the fruits of that passion and resurrection, which is peace and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, as we're going to see in a second here. And so Jesus's purpose is to reconcile the world back to himself. And what's fascinating here, though, is immediately just a few sentence in in sentences into revealing himself after the resurrection to the 12 he's going to say to them as the father has sent me so i send you and what again what did the father send jesus to do to reconcile the world back to god to reconcile the world back to himself back to his father and so what is he going to send the apostles to do the same thing as the father has sent me so i send you i send you out to reconcile the world back to me not because jesus didn't once and for all close the gap, the rupture between God and man by his passion, death, and resurrection, but because the means by which he's going to continue his salvific work in the world, because he's going to ascend to heaven, he's not going to stay on the earth forever. The means that he has chosen as most fitting to continue his salvific work, to make his work present in the lives of those to come, is to, in a way, deputize his mission and to give it to the 12. And the the way that he deputizes his mission is to give the apostles the gift of grace through the sacraments. And so what do we see immediately after Jesus says to them, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. What does he say? Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Jesus came to forgive sin. Jesus came to forgive sin. Uh, Many people find difficulty with the Catholic notion of confession. I know we, we have some 
sometimes we have some non-Catholic listeners here. And I just want to, I want to try my best to make a, a case for confession. Jesus has the most tender heart ever. His heart is full of such love for us. And he came to forgive our sins, to reconcile us back to him. I can't think of anything more tender than instituting a sacrament which allows me to confess my sins and to know with complete assurance that when the priest says to me, acting in the person of Christ, I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, that I am forgiven of those sins. It's just not enough for Jesus to kind of blanket say, I have you forgiven your sins or even I've, you know, opened forgiveness to you so that we maybe wonder, are we not fully forgiven until we meet God in heaven? It's not enough for him. He wants us to have the peace that comes with the assurance of forgiveness and not just a blanket forgiveness, but forgiveness of those sins, which we bring to him in the successors of the apostles in our bishops and our priests. This is just a great tenderness on the part of our Lord. And so our priests and our bishops successors of the apostles having been deputized Jesus's mission, forgive sins. They forgive sins. Not only that though, they pass on the gift of the Holy spirit that Jesus gives to them. I want to back up a second here because I've been focusing on the kind of last part of our Lord's uh, statements here at verse 22, it says when he had said this, he breathed on them. And then he says, receive the Holy spirit. This is one of my absolute favorite images in all of scripture because, Oh, it's just so it's so deep and it's so rich. What do we think of? What would the 12 thought of when Jesus came to them and breathed on them? Well, hopefully their minds immediately went to Genesis all the way back to the beginning of scripture. Genesis chapter two, verse seven, then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life and man became a living being. I always, and I know I bring this up all the time in talks. I always think of uh, C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, who writes Aslan uh, going, um, going into, I think it's the, the witch's palace where she has turned all of the uh, creatures of Narnia, all of these creatures of Narnia to stone, into statues, essentially. And how does Aslan free them? One by one, he goes up to the, the creatures that have been turned to stone, turned to, to statues, and he <sighs> breathes on them. When he breathes on them, uh, 
they come back to life. And so Jesus, who himself is the very word of God, whose spirit because he is he is a member of the trinity whose spirit is the holy spirit goes to the 12 and he <sighs> breathes on them and when he breathes on them he gives them a new life as god gave adam life in the garden by breathing into him and that's why he follows up this this act of breathing on them with the statement receive the holy spirit and then he gives them this great, this great deputized duty of the forgiveness of sins. Let's continue on to verse 24. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the 12 was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. Okay, so Thomas is not among those, unfortunately, who have this initial encounter with our Lord on the evening of Easter Sunday. And he uh, rejoins them behind uh, closed doors. And they, they recount to Thomas the experience of meeting the risen Lord. And he says, I'm not going to believe what you say until I myself see him. And not only that, but I put my uh, finger in the nail holes and my hand into his side that was pierced open, right? And Jesus, again, in great tenderness, what does he do? A week later, the disciples are again holed up in their house. But Thomas is with them. And once more, Jesus stands in their midst, even though the doors are shut. This, this uh, word in Greek is the same as the one used earlier. It could, be, it could be translated locked as well. Interestingly enough, even though we're told that the doors were still locked, we're not told that they were afraid. And so we see here this idea that Jesus' gift of peace and his breathing on them, the gift of the Holy Spirit, has had efficaciousness and it appears to have taken away the disciples' fears. What's fascinating too is that if our first part of our reading took place on Easter Sunday, a week later is, if you want to go by liturgical labeling, the second Sunday of Easter. Why it's very, very fitting that we read this reading uh, on the day that we do. So Jesus comes to them once more. He gives them the same greeting, peace be with you. And then he turns to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and reach out your hand and put it in my side. 
do not doubt, but believe. Do not doubt, but believe. Again, Jesus' great concern with the physicality of his resurrection, but also his great concern for his beloved followers. Thomas is convinced, thankfully, as he promised he would be, by actually putting his finger in the nail holes and his his hand into Jesus' side. And uh, that's an image for meditation for sure. Uh, Putting your hand in Jesus' side, uh, because that, that is how pierced and opened it was, right? And Thomas, believing, makes an exclamation of faith. He makes a a confession of faith. What does he say? He says, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. And interestingly enough, this is actually only the second time in scripture or the second time in the gospel of John, I should say, where Jesus is explicitly called God. So at other times in the gospel of John, he's hinted to as being uh, someone of God, being someone from God, uh, the son of God, for example. But it's not until here that we have Jesus once more being explicitly called God. So the first time, there's only two times. The first time it happens in in John is John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, right? And then here, fast forward to the end of John's gospel as if a sort of bookends Thomas puts his finger in the nail holes, his hand in Jesus' side, and says in this confession of belief, my Lord and my God, Jesus, you are God. You are God. See, Jesus' divinity in many ways hinges on the resurrection We talked last time about how St. Paul is so emphatic. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain. And so many people struggle with the idea of Jesus's divinity. And here our gospel today is so important for us because we can put ourselves in the place of St. Thomas And we should. And if if we put ourselves in the place of St. Thomas and in great faith, ask our Lord to reveal himself to us and are open to that revelation, we may indeed be able to make the confession that Thomas makes as well. My Lord and my God. And you can say but I haven't seen his hands and put my fingers in the nail holes. I haven't 
seen his side and put my hand in the wound. I haven't seen the risen Lord. And so how can he be revealed to me? But Jesus, it appears, answers that question himself. So after Thomas makes his confession of faith, my Lord and my God, Jesus says to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Uh, the, the first part of Jesus's uh, statement is often translated a question as I just read, have you believed because you have seen me? But uh, questions in Greek are notoriously hard to translate. You, you kind of have to go on context here. And so technically speaking, it's not obvious that this is a question. And so it's possible that it's a statement. It's possible that what Jesus said to Thomas was, you have believed because you have seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. And John himself kind of like breaking the fourth wall or wherever, whatever, whatever you call it in like uh, in plays, right? Where, where the person on the stage actually turns and begins to address the crowd. John, as if in that position, breaks with the narrative and turns to address his audience and his audience is us. And he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, that through believing you may have life in his name. And so John takes up this idea himself of future disciples coming to believe in Jesus, even though they have not seen, even though they have not seen. And so Jesus understands that for us in, in these generations past after Jesus's ascension, our belief hinges not on sight, but on what has been received which is precisely why John has written his gospel so that we could encounter our Lord through the scriptures, even though we cannot encounter him through the closed doors of the upper room of Jerusalem as the 12 did. But for Jesus, that is a very real encounter, encountering him in the scriptures, encountering him in the gospels, because indeed he says, you can come to believe in me, even though you have not seen me. It's fascinating because our Lord kind of alluded to this idea, actually at his last supper, um, the high priestly prayer in John 17, at one point he says, I, Jesus says, I do not pray for these only meaning the 12, because a big part of the high priestly prayer in John, which takes place at the Last Supper, is a prayer in regards to Jesus' disciples. So Jesus says at John 17, verse 20, I do not pray for these only, meaning his 12, but also for those who believe in me through their word. But also for those who believe in me through their word. 
Now, does this require faith? And does this require trust? Absolutely. Absolutely. But we can, we can read in Jesus's words and in John's words, a great concern for us. You and I reading this text nearly 2,000 years after it has been written. It was written for us that we might know what Jesus has done for us, that we might understand that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that the divine Logos, the second person of the Trinity, desiring to reconcile the world to himself, became incarnate, lived as a man, died on the cross and rose from the dead. Why? So that you might have life. So that he could breathe on you and bring you back to life. That image of Jesus breathing on the disciples in the upper room, I said it immediately takes us back to Genesis 2 and the creation of man. But it also takes us back to another place in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 37 which is this famous prophecy of the dry bones. So if we read, uh, for example, Ezekiel 37, verse nine, you can back up, you can go to the scriptures yourself and back up to get more context. But Ezekiel 36, verse nine, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they lived these dry bones that have been gathered together. The flesh has come upon them. And then, and then Ezekiel following the commands of God uh, commands prophesies for the breath to come. And it does. And, and, and those dry bones are breathed into, and it says that they stood upon their feet And it goes on in verse 11, God says to Ezekiel, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. Oh, my people. And I will bring you home to the land of Israel. Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. But God promises that we can trust in his resurrection. But not only that, we can be confident in our own resurrection because the Lord has promised that he will open our graves, that he will raise us from the grave and that our hope is not lost. Our hope is not lost. I want to spend a few minutes here connecting these ideas, this beautiful scripture with Jesus's revelations to St. Faustina regarding the divine mercy. So, uh, Not too long ago, uh, relatively speaking, Jesus appeared to a Polish nun 
named Sister Faustina. And he spoke to her about his great love for humanity and how that great love for humanity is manifested in his mercy and how we as, as his creatures don't fully recognize the great desire he has to pour out his mercy upon us. His heart aches for us and it aches for us in our wounds, in our sufferings, in our baggage, in our pain, in our sinfulness even. Jesus aches when we sin against him because it hurts him, but he aches because it hurts us. It hurts us. And he aches especially for those who are trying to overcome sin and and just can't seem to, right? He aches for us and he desires to pour out his mercy upon us. These are some of the words of Jesus to St. Faustina. I have opened my heart as a living fountain of mercy. Let all souls draw life from it. Let them approach the sea of mercy with trust. On the cross, the fountain of my mercy was opened wide by the lance for all souls. No one has been excluded. No one has been excluded. I am love and mercy itself. This is Jesus speaking. I am love and mercy itself. Let no soul fear to draw near to me, even though its sins be as scarlet. My mercy is greater than your sins and those of the entire world. I let my sacred heart be pierced with a lance, thus opening wide the source of mercy for you. Come then with trust to God, to draw graces from this fountain. I never reject a contrite heart. Sooner would heaven and earth turn into nothingness than would my mercy not embrace a trusting soul. Sooner would heaven and earth turn into nothingness then would my mercy not embrace a trusting soul. Let us not be like the prodigal son who for a time was reluctant to go back to his father, but let our hearts be moved like him who eventually came back to his father. And what did the father do? He ran to meet him. Jesus loves you. And Jesus wants to pour out his mercy upon you. It is already flowing. It flows in a perpetual sort of way from the cross, from those wounds that he still contains on his glorified, resurrected body. And it's from those wounds, it's with those wounds that Jesus pours out his mercy onto the entire world. He came to reconcile the world to himself. Let yourself be reconciled to God. Let yourself be reconciled to God. There's one phrase that Jesus uh, used to sum up what it means to trust in him. And it's, it's not profound. It's exactly what it sounds like. But he encouraged us and St. Faustina, he encouraged us through St. Faustina 
to always commend ourselves to him and to, to utter whenever necessary, if not constantly, these beautiful words, Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, I trust in you. From the belief that I have to earn your love, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear that I am unlovable, deliver me, Jesus. From the false security that I have what it takes, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear that trusting you will leave me destitute, deliver me, Jesus. From all suspicion of words and promises, deliver me, Jesus. From the rebellion against childlike dependency on you, deliver me, Jesus. From refusals and reluctances and accepting your will, deliver me, Jesus. From anxiety about the future, deliver me, Jesus. From resentment or excessive preoccupation with the past, deliver me, Jesus. From restless self-seeking in the present moment, deliver me, Jesus. From disbelief in your love and presence, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being asked to give more than I have, deliver me, Jesus. From the belief that my life has no meaning or worth, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of what love demands, deliver me, Jesus. From discouragement, deliver me, Jesus. That you are continually holding me, sustaining me, loving me, Jesus, I trust in you. That your love goes deeper than my sins and failings and transforms me, Jesus, I trust in you. That not knowing what tomorrow brings is an invitation to lean on you, Jesus, I trust in you. That you are with me in my suffering, Jesus, I trust in you. That my suffering united to your own will bear fruit in this life and the next, Jesus, I trust in you. That you will not leave me orphan, that you are present in your church, Jesus, I trust in you. That your plan is better than anything else. Jesus, I trust in you. That you always hear me and in your goodness always respond to me. Jesus, I trust in you. That you give me the grace to accept forgiveness and to forgive others. Jesus, I trust in you. That you give me all the strength I need for what is asked. Jesus, I trust in you. That my life is a gift. Jesus, I trust in you. That you will teach me to trust you. Jesus, I trust in you that you are my Lord and my God. Jesus, I trust in you. These are the beautiful words of a prayer called the Litany of Trust. You can Google it or I'll link to it in the show notes. Jesus, I trust in you. There's this beautiful prayer um, that our Lord encouraged us to pray. He, he uh, gave it to St. Faustina. It goes like this. Eternal God, in whom mercy is endless and the treasury of compassion inexhaustible, look kindly upon us and increase your mercy in us that in difficult moments we might not despair or become despondent, but with great confidence submit ourselves to your holy will, which is love and mercy and Holy will, Lord, what you want from me is nothing more than love and mercy itself. Jesus, I trust in you.